Welcome to the DTB podcast for December 2019, volume 57, number 12. My name's David Fazakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. In our editorial this month, we revisit the subject of the polypill, those fixed-dose combination of drugs to prevent cardiovascular disease. What's the focus of the editorial? So Julian, uh, one of our board members, has written uh, a really good editorial on the Poly Iran study, which is a community-based cohort study that's just been published looking at a fixed combination, as you say, of the poly pill, and really to look at the benefit of it compared with controls. It was a five-year study, well designed, and the outcome, I suppose, put simply, was rather disappointing. And we look at perhaps what that means for the poly pill. You know, this is a this is an idea that was first really lauded by Professor Wald and Professor Law in 2003, where they were thinking that probably there'd be a sort of 80% reduction in cardiovascular disease by its use. And this new study, unfortunately, doesn't really demonstrate that. So let's just quickly unpack what the combination they tested was. So they used aspirin, atorvastatin, hydrochlorothiazide and enalapril, unless you had a cough, in which case it was the same combination, but the enalapril was replaced by valsartan. And some of the criticisms we've levelled at polypill studies in the past is they've looked at surrogate outcomes, but this one looked at so a, this is a proper disease. Exactly, outcome. it was primary outcome was major cardiovascular events. So it was it was uh, you know well designed and so if you like proper proper outcomes. And the event rate. So we we saw 5.9% of the polypill group had a major cardiovascular event in the five years compared to 8.8% in the control group. So an absolute reduction of... Do your maths, about 2.9%, uh, which is a numbers needed to treat for five years of about 35. Okay, so that doesn't sound terribly different from what you get from using a statin alone. Exactly. That's one of the points that Julian makes, actually, is is the outcome from this study really didn't seem to offer any advantage over just using a statin. And the comparator group was what? Uh, they still had their own GP standard treatment, you know, with their, with their standard primary care provider. And that's one of the issues, I think, that the authors of the, the study mentioned that there actually had been a big national campaign to improve the health of people so one of the issues they feel is that actually it may well be that the control group saw better health outcomes than perhaps uh, otherwise you might have seen. So the good things are this was a well-designed study looked at an important outcome and tested it in, in, a, in a sensible population but does it actually lead us any further to seeing a role for the polypill? Well, I, I don't think it does. And I think one of the things that struck me when I saw this study was I thought, oh, hang on a minute. Hasn't hydrochlorothiazide had an MHRA warning just last year telling us to be very careful about the cumulative risk of non-melanoma skin cancer? And that's the problem with the polypill. Each element, element of it can be hit by drug issues in the future and you're therefore left perhaps with having to redesign it again. And, and I think um, certainly in countries have a well-developed primary care system, the polypill really probably hasn't got a place. Perhaps in areas where that isn't so uh, well-defined, it may be that a polypill forms a quick fix for you. But it certainly looks to me as if there isn't yet a role for the polypill that I can see. Okay, thank you very much. And our main article this month reviews a new or newish drug for the management of 
vulva and vaginal atrophy. Uh, what's the drug and what do we know about it? So this is prasterone, which is actually simply a 6.5 milligram pessary of dehydroepiandosterone, which I suspect many people are thinking, oh, I remember that from biochemistry days. Dehydroepiandosterone is a precursor for a lot of the sex hormones. And the way this drug works, it's, it's a vaginal pessary. It is broken down by the cells to estrogen and that therefore provides you with local estrogen effect on the vagina in patients who have postmenopausal vulval or vaginal atrophy. So we looked at another drug earlier in the year, ospemaphine, which also was providing treatment for the same condition. What do we know about this one in terms of benefits? So the benefits were really looking at three areas. One, symptoms, particularly dyspareunia other symptoms such as uh, dryness, and then some more perhaps esoteric outcomes such as uh, vaginal maturation index, which is a histological change, and vaginal pH. So of those, pH and the maturation index are kind of disease-related measures, not really of importance to the individual. The other two are symptom-based. What do we know about the effect of the drug on those two? So one of the, one of the studies looked at dyspareunia in particular, and scored it. They looked at patients with moderate to severe dyspareunia over 12 weeks and showed that you got a 1.3 drop in symptoms with um, prasterone compared to a 0.9 point drop for placebo. Now that was statistically uh, significant but most people suggest that you need at least a greater or equal to one point difference between placebo and the active ingredient for there to be a clinically significant change so it was very marginal if there was a benefit from that and that sounds similar to what we discovered when we looked at ospemaphine which again you got this difference which was statistically significant but maybe not hugely clinically significant absolutely yeah and then adverse effects so uh, adverse effects were things like vaginal discharge as one might expect not least because it was a wax-based pessary so that often can be a problem but also breast and uterine issues were perhaps the main areas with about 1.4 percent incidence in the treatment group versus about 0.2 percent in the controls and this was things like abnormal smears atypical cells were found in three percent of patients taking prasterone, also uterine polyps, ovarian cysts. That sort of area was where the problem problems mostly lay. So having looked at the various factors of efficacy, harms, patient choice, what do we know about cost? So we're looking at uh, 15, 16 pounds for 28 days of prasterone. And that compares to 39, 40 pounds for ospemaphine. And if you look at vaginal cream, we're talking about probably four pounds for a month and then perhaps you know, a pound a month after that, so considerably more expensive than traditional treatments. So bottom line? So it's difficult to know quite where this fits in. If you have got a reason why vaginal estrogen is contraindicated, then that may be because you have a history of uh, female cancer, such as endometrial cancer or vaginal cancers, and therefore um, this would equally be contraindicated. So it may have a place, but I, at the moment I can't quite see where that would be. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, our case report this month features both an adverse effect and treatment to tackle the problem. So what was it? This at first, at first uh, count might seem a little bit marginal for the average clinician, but I think it's got some really important learning points. This is a case of a, of a 25-year-old man who became very poorly mentally and was treated with uh, quetiapine. But the dose required to manage his 
uh, condition, which was about 600 milligrams, I think, of quetiapine, he began to develop retrograde ejaculation. And this was a great concern to him. And there was a risk that he was going to stop taking his quetiapine. And so the authors looked at some of the evidence in case reports and they trialled him with imipramine, initially 25 milligrams at night, which didn't work. And then 50 milligrams at night led to a return of anterior grade ejaculation. And that allowed the patient to continue on his treatment uh, successfully. And that was a good outcome with really nothing more than some constipation reported. And I had a quick look uh, both at the SPC for quetiapine, but couldn't see anything in there highlighting this as a problem. And also looked at the MHRA drug analysis profile for quetiapine. And out of 7,500 adverse reports, there was one of retrograde ejaculation with the drug and possibly one other of, of ejaculatory problems. So not common. Uh, but interesting, they found a solution. Well, I think so. And I, but for me, I think the, the biggest take-home message is that risperidone, clozapine, quetiapine, a lot of these major antipsychotic medications do have effects on sexual health. And if you don't ask, the chances are patients will not tell you. So I think for me, I mean, the authors suggest that there's about a 10% risk of a sexual side effect with quetiapine. So that wouldn't be a, a retrograde ejaculation. That may be problems with libido and erectile dysfunction. But I think for me, the, the message here is ask about it because it may well be that a considerable number of patients are struggling with that as part of their treatment. And so if you don't ask, you won't find out. And if you don't find out, you may not realize that the patient may not be willing to carry on with the therapy. Absolutely right. And that is the, often the major issue with patients with mental health issues is that the drugs are often not very clean. And if, you, if, they, you know, they're, if they're not feeling well on them, they're not going to take them. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, to read these and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com.